0: Talking books on New Sock 106 to 108.:
1: I think most people come back to some kind of normality, and for some people, it may be a freer normality than the previous one. I, mean, I don't think we should ever be grateful for the terrible things that happen. But sometimes the world we build afterwards might be better than the world we had before which doesn't mean it was a price worth paying. I think the challenge is not to be dominated by fear, and I think often where where children are involved, they will model to adults how to get on with your life because they're changing all the time anyway and they don't want to be held back by the bad things. They will accept it, integrate it, and move on, and I think if the adults around them can learn from that, that can be a great source of strength
2: is religion a money-making business a commodity to be bought and sold and will the deregulation of the religious marketplace foster more harmonious and peaceful societies hello how are you and you're very welcome to talking books i'm susan cahill it's lovely to have your company this evening well on tonight's show we're going to tackle those questions and meet with two robust and expansive thinkers one a writer and teacher the other a theologian and peace activist. Writers with tremendous empathy, courage and perspective. British writer Sarah Moss talks the NHS, parental love and the impact of time poverty on everyday family life. And Norwegian theologian and academic Torkel Brekke unpacks his latest book, Faithonomics, Religion and the Free Market. This is a show about fear and uncertainty monopolies and marketplaces and a new take on religious freedom but first the tidal zone with Sarah Moss.
1: I'm Sarah Moss I'm a professor at Warwick University um, mostly these days a novelist Um, I live in the West Midlands which is the place I've started to write about now after years of writing about Cornwall and the far north. I'm an obsessive knitter and I really like long distance running I'm going to read to you from my fifth novel, The Tidal Zone. It's about a family who's struck by sudden disaster. The narrator is Adam, a kind of part-time jobbing academic, but mostly a stay-at-home dad, and he's married to Emma, a GP. They have two daughters, 15-year-old Miriam and 8-year-old Rose, and it's Miriam who's struck by disaster. And I'm starting very near the beginning of the novel with our main character, our narrator, Adam, about to hear the news that will change his world and the world of his family. This section is called You Can Imagine It. There are no premonitions. The fact that you're eating a barely acceptable sandwich or devoting unjustifiable intellectual energy to your latest contribution to a social networking site doesn't mean that you're not in the interval between losing everything you take for granted and finding out that you have lost it. In the era of instant communication, that interval still exists. Even as you read this, someone, a police officer or a teacher or a colleague, the person playing the angel of death in the script you didn't know you were following, may be taking a deep breath, remembering the workshop on sharing bad news, as he or she prepares to dial your number and say the words we have all imagined, the words with which we torture ourselves as if thinking about this possibility, admitting it to our minds, will keep it in the realm of nightmare and fantasy. There's been an incident. Imagining things does not stop them happening, nor does not imagining them. People, mostly parents in the school playground, which of course one of us still had to attend twice daily for Rose, said, I can't imagine what you and Emma must be going through. It is exactly as you imagine it, I said. When you read accounts of ordinary lives disrupted by sudden disaster, by the ice on the road or the sleepy lorry driver, or the plane falling from the sky, or the angry young men with military hardware and nothing left to lose, when you shiver and turn the page, it is like that. You can imagine it. What you imagine is correct. This is not what they, the parents, wanted me to say.
2: Really well done on the book, Sarah. It's an absolutely hugely affecting uh, novel on so many themes related to the family, but mainly I think about anxiety and uncertainty. Can I ask you, when you set out to write the book, what questions were you asking yourself?
1: I was thinking about the new normal, which is familiar to so many people, and there wasn't a particular personal experience that made me start thinking about this. But, you know, as you get into your 40s, things begin to happen to your family and friends, you have more experience of the world, more of the people you know are dealing with sudden and unexpected changes and meeting grief and disaster. And I was fascinated by the way narrative works in those situations, because I think mostly we, we all have a story for ourselves. We imagine ourselves at a point in the story and we may not want to think very much about the ending, but we know the beginning and we know where we think we are at the moment. And... When something happens, whether it's a diagnosis or a car accident or sometimes a sudden political change, that narrative is broken and yet we keep going. And I was interested in those, those breaks, in the way those breaks in lived experience can be met by a broken narrative.
2: Do you think we have forgotten in some ways with all technology and with how we're living and the pace of life that we almost forget how fragile life is?
1: I do think that and I think we live in isolation from death at the moment and it's easy to think that death is something that happens to other people or to the very old and it happens out of sight in hospitals where we don't have to think about it. Um, I guess from talking to Irish friends this may be a bit more the case in England than in Ireland but still I think it's all been sanitized and brushed away. In ways that are historically very alien, I mean, most people in most countries in the world now and in most of history would have known loss and grief and bloodshed and sickness very early and as as part of normality in a way that we no longer do.
2: Sarah, you have a beautiful passage in the book where you write, we all live in patterns we do not see. We are all following magic ravens, even when we are lost. Otherwise, there would be no story. I found that so profound and so true. And it's these truths that are facing us, yet we just don't seem to see them.
1: We avoid them until they come and get us. But they do come and get us. They come and get all of us eventually. And when that happens, you need a story. Actually, you need a story to keep going. It's very hard to live without one. So we find them, we find them in stories about brokenness or we believe that there's hidden meaning and that if we keep going, the meaning will become clear to us. That maddening thing people say sometimes, "Oh, everything happens for a reason. Of course it doesn't, but it's something that we need to believe because without a reason, it's almost impossible to keep going.
2: It's one of the best openings I've read in a long time, what you wrote. It's incredibly powerful, very emotional, incredibly sensuous. You said to me earlier that you wrote the opening a uh, few pages in one straight set. I found that really surprising, but it must have been such a flow that you just couldn't stop because it reads so vibrantly. The pitch to it is, it's quite something.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's the only thing I've ever written that we've published in first draft. I think normally I'm an obsessive rewriter and editor of sentences and commas and I move the punctuation around and I try how a different simile would look and then I change it back again. And that passage, I just wrote it and then I stuck it at the beginning of the book and I thought I'd probably go back to it, but I didn't. And then when I sent it to my editor, he really loved it. And we we didn't really discuss it, but we just kind of quietly, tacitly ignored it from there on in
2: presumably though in terms of writing all your other books this is your fifth novel that it hasn't essentially happened like that all the time and it's a a question of just or a matter of sticking at it and persisting and redrafting and rereading and more redrafting but you can I think when you read something that so flows and there's a there's a musical quality to it as a reader that it just it takes life its own.
1: Yes. And actually, I I never read that bit when I'm doing readings because I still sometimes cry when I read it. (laughs) I think if the author's crying, what hope is there for the audience, really? Um, So, yes, it's just become the kind of unspoken thing that sits there at the beginning.
2: So how did you begin to write about family trauma and the uncertainties in life? It's a particularly um, affecting story of a young girl who was diagnosed with a very rare condition. Can you Mm. tell me about it?
1: I came across that much later. I knew I wanted to write about a sudden intervention in an apparently ordinary and happy and well-ordered life. And I went through various possibilities, but I wanted something that might happen again because I think that is, that is really the human condition. And sometimes, you know, if, you, if something terribly unlucky happens to you there's a need to think oh well at least at least my bad luck has happened to me now nothing else is going to happen but we know it's not really like that having one piece of bad luck is no guarantee that you're not going to have another so I wanted to write about a family who were living with the reality of that truth that one bad thing happening is no guarantee that another bad thing won't happen and it was actually well there were two things that me one of them was that we have friends in London for whom we house it often we've been doing it for years and once we'd been staying there and I'd bought some peanut butter for the kids because we like it and when we left there was half a jar left so I left it in the cupboard because he's going to carry half a jar of peanut butter around the country and a few months later I was talking to my friend and she just mentioned quite casually that one of her kids has a potentially fatal reaction to peanuts I thought, oh, I cannot believe it. You know, they must have had to fumigate their house. And I felt terrible about it. And I said, I'm so sorry I left peanut butter in your house. I can't me. I would never have done that if I'd known. And I'd known her for years, and she'd never mentioned it. And she said, oh, we don't make a fuss. we just teach him to avoid peanuts. And I thought, she's been carrying that around all these years. And she hadn't kept it secret from me particularly. we just never talked about it. Suddenly, her whole life looked different to me. And knowing that there's a substance out there in the world that can kill you very quickly...
2: And trusting the world will not do that to you, (laughs) if you will. It it got me thinking, though, that we have the NHS, uh, which is quite similar to our health service here in Ireland. And that almost is a character in the book in terms of how you write the kind of the atmosphere, the the stillness at night. But it got me thinking that within the crappy food, within the overstretched nursing services, within the uh, high pressure environments, that at least we have functioning health systems here. Because when you think about all around the world, if this was a story of a child maybe somewhere in africa or possibly let's say look at syria indeed
1: Yes, and I was thinking about that all the time I was writing, because that's one of the impossibilities once you start thinking about luck and bad luck. I mean, I've been talking about the terrible bad luck that comes to this family, but it's also extraordinary good luck, because the paramedics get there, there's a defibrillator, there are people who know what to do, and then she's taken off to a very well-equipped hospital, which may not feed her very well and may not care for her need for privacy and dignity and something to do, but nonetheless is able to give her the treatment that she needs in order to return to her life and her education. One of the starting points for this novel was one day, must have been two or three years ago, and I had the Today programme on in the mornings on Radio 4, I always do, and I was making the packed lunches and putting the kids' breakfast together, you know, going up every five minutes to shout, it's 7.30, get out of bed, it's 7.35, get out of the shower, you two are going to be late if you don't get on with it. And in between listening to the news, and there was an interview with a journalist in Syria And he'd recorded a conversation which ended with a man standing in the rubble of his house shouting, where is the world? Why is the world not listening to us? Where is the world? And I froze in my kitchen thinking, here, I'm here, I can hear you. You know, the BBC has done its job. I hear your voice. But I don't know what to do about it. I can't react in any useful way. And I kind of went through my day haunted by that. And when my kids got back from school... They told me that a child, had, there'd been some collision on the football pitch. It wasn't anything like what happens to Miriam, but the air ambulance had been called and the child had been taken to hospital. And I thought, so I live in a world where on the same day, at one end of the Mediterranean, helicopters come and shoot people and bomb their houses and kill children. And at the other end of the Mediterranean, a helicopter comes to rescue a child who's broken a leg and take him to hospital. And the impossibility of living with that became part of the novel.
2: Yeah, when you think that through, it becomes so overwhelmingly disgusting, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, it's actually hard to, to put a word in it. Now, one of the interesting aspects of the tidal zone is that our two parents, Emma, who's a family GP, and Adam, who's a stay-at-home dad, mm. they're dealing with a lot of juggling priorities. Uh, time poverty, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. They're completely exhausted. They're quite frazzled. And how they're trying to negotiate their own lived timetables of how they get through any day. It seems that just basic parental life is taxing. Is that something you feel very strongly about?
1: We need fiction and literature of the everyday, and I think that's been missing from a lot of more serious literary work over a long time. I mean, I'm thinking two, 300 years. This is not a comment about my fellow novelists of the present day. But I'm interested in a kind of literature that doesn't marginalise the amount of time that some people spend putting socks in the washing machine and getting them out again or making the packed lunches. And some readers say... Oh, you know, she, she writes about another pot of pasta. And I think, yes, but we spend so much time over our pots of pasta. Why should it not be written about? Why should there not be a literature that takes that domestic work seriously? And I think part of the answer to that question is because for years and years and years it's been done by women and therefore considered to be boring and beneath notice.
2: But the interesting thing in the tidal zone is Adam is quite good at the at the family lunchbox yeah. and is has a particular fascination with healthy food and he's very particular. And he almost has how he loves us through food, which is very interesting, but got me thinking, do you think we've got over all our cultural barriers about stay-at-home dads?
1: No, I think there's still a sense that it's a a weird thing to do. My husband was our stay-at-home dad for years, and he found that particularly women would tell him how wonderful he was and what a great job he was doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was doing a perfectly decent job. The kids were well-fed and healthy and clean, and it was fine. I'm not suggesting that he wasn't doing a good job. But people used to tell me how really lucky I was that my husband would change nappies and put the wash on. And I don't think anybody ever told him how lucky he was that I would go out to work all day. So there was a sense that what's completely normal and boring when a woman does it becomes some kind of heroic task when a man manages to complete it. And he found that as annoying as it, I did. I mean, it,
2: of it's, absolutely it. rid- it's absolutely ridiculous, but it also uh, suggests... That women don't trust their partners or husbands or whoever it is to actually think that they are up for the job and can do a good job of parenting in the sense of pack the lunches, get the clothes washed, cook the dinner without burning it, you know, whatever, the um, you know, administer medicine, whatever it is, that they actually have the wherewithal to do it. They don't trust them
1: learned skill and I think like any kind of delegation whether it's at home or at work you have to accept that another person learning to do it is going to mess it up at the beginning and may then not do it the way you would do it. But we all cope with that in the workplace, and I don't think it's at all difficult to cope with it at home. I mean, of course, I, you know, I was the one who took the maternity leave, so when I first went back to work, I did have a huge skill set that my husband didn't have. But he's a perfectly intelligent human being who'd been competent in all sorts of workplaces for many years. You know, you give him a week and he's going to work out how to bath the baby, change a nappy, get Calpol into them when you need to, whatever it is. So I think... There are reasons why women find it hard to accept that men will be able to take over and do the job because we're still held responsible for it. I mean, if people come and look at your house and it's a mess, they won't usually blame the man. Culturally, we're held responsible for the childcare and the domesticity. And certainly all the time that my husband was at home and I was working full time, whenever there was anything in the papers about children, it was always mother's fault. And I used to show them to him and say, see, it's your fault, you're the primary carer
2: did you spend a lot of time in hospitals Sarah because you've there's some beautiful night lines like on the children's ward parent sadness comes out at night I found that unbelievably beautiful and very very sad but there was a real mood to how you wrote the hospital passages and uh, quite a reflective uh, mood in it so I'm just wondering did you spend some time in hospital yourself when you were younger or how did you go about all of that
1: mostly it's just um, one of my kids was in hospital for a while years ago and he was, he was much much younger but yeah some of that's coming from personal experience Do you think we
2: can all cope eventually with the chaos whether it's some form of catastrophe that affects a family do you think that we can eventually as people that we can endure and uh, become resilient enough to actually just deal with when something terrible happens that we can get over it and the terrible becomes the normal and we can manage our way around it? Do you think that's possible for all families?
1: I think most people come back to some kind of normality and for some people it may be a freer normality than the previous one. I mean, I don't think we should ever be grateful for the terrible things that happen. But sometimes the world we build afterwards might be better than the world we had before, which doesn't mean it was a price worth paying. I think the challenge is not to be dominated by fear and I think often where, where children are involved they will model to adults how to get on with your life because they're changing all the time anyway and they don't want to be held back by the bad things. They will accept it, integrate it and move on. And I think if the adults around them can learn from that, that can be a great source of strength.
2: Eli, which is Adam's father, um, spent some time in intentional communities. This Mm. is part of the backstory of the book and it's beautifully woven into the main narrative. I'm just wondering intentional communities, have you ever lived on one or why did you choose to have that as Eli's backstory?
1: I haven't lived on one. I've always been interested in them. I think I'm far too much of an introvert, actually. I've never read about an intentional community where you can go off and spend most of your time on your own reading um, or indeed on your own going for long runs somewhere else. I'm interested in them as a counter to the family and I've been interested in institutions and intentional communities throughout my writing career because it seems to me that they're the the most viable alternative we have to family life. And I'm always interested in comparing them. Anna Freud, who set up wartime nurseries for children in England during the Second World War, was quite consciously doing experiments to see if institutions could do a better job of raising kids than families. And that's a question that continues to fascinate me. And I think the answer may be fairly clearly no in most cases, but then there are certainly families where one would rather be in an institution. And institution's seem to me to be such utopian ideas that you can, rather than just sinking into the kind of well meaning model of most family lives, you can actually draw up a set of aims and a set of rules and try to live well or do the job of raising kids or educating them or being fair or whatever the aim is, according to regulations and live by principles. It's a very intriguing idea. I mean, I don't know that it often works very well. But the optimistic
2: side of that is the intention and the attitude of mm. living better or finding better structures yes. in order for communities to thrive and flourish. Yeah. Because exactly. clearly we're living through deep felt sense of stagnation within communities. We've a lot of isolation, we've a lot of disparities between the right communities, so to speak, or the rich or well off communities yes. and then those which are on the fringes.
1: Yes, and I'm interested in ways of addressing that and thinking differently about how people live with each other. And usually these days when we hear the word community, it's some politician being rude about a community of which he or she doesn't imagine him or herself to be part. But there are some very utopian ideas which I like to take very seriously about ways we could do things better by choice.
2: And that was British author Sarah Moss. The Tidal Zone is published by Granta Books and retails for in around 18 euros in paperback. I can also recommend some other of Sarah's big reads, including Night Walking, Cold Earth and Signs for Lost Children, again, all published by Granta Books.
0: Talking Books, on new song, 106 to 108.
2: And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What effect has the internet on religion? Is atheism a religion? And what religious goods do Buddhism or Hinduism offer? In Faithonomics, Religion and the Free Market, Norwegian writer and academic Torkel Brekke argues. If governments and societies could start to see religious organisations as firms selling products or as clubs, many of the current anxieties about religion could be reduced. Torkel goes on to argue there is nothing immoral or imperialist in the market perspective on religion. This perspective on religion does not entail disrespect of religion or religious people. It does not mean reducing the value and meaning of faith. In short, the market perspective can clarify and strengthen the arguments for freedom of religion throughout the world. So, do we need to find a new way
0: to think about religion? Hello, my name is Torkel Bekke. I'm a Norwegian. I live in Oslo, in Norway, and I'm a professor in the study of religion. I work at the Peace Research Institute here in Oslo, and my line of research is about the way that uh, religion uh, relates to politics. I've written a book called Fundamentalism, Prophecy and Protest um, it was a few years ago, and now I published a book called Faith and Economics, which is about religion and the free market.
2: What an interesting read, Faithonomics, Torkel. It's um, so surprising in parts, really eye-opening in other parts. I might throw you a big wide open question to start off with. And considering that you brought the great uh, Scottish philosopher and political economist into the book, I might start with him, Adam Smith. Adam Smith once once wrote that all money is a matter of belief. Do you think he's a point there?
0: Absolutely. I think if we all lose trust in money and, and finance um, at the same time, uh, everything would, would break down. So it's absolutely a, a matter of faith. And of course, Adam Smith is, is one of my heroes as well. And, and I, I use him a lot in, in my in my book.
2: Do you think it could be argued, Torkel, that there are markets for religion? And what I mean by that is that there are markets for religious ideas, goods and services, that we can oh. look at religion as a commodity.
0: Oh, absolutely, and, and that's that's my core argument in in, in the book. There are um, markets for uh, religious services, goods, and so on, and I think that claim shouldn't be really controversial because if if you look at a church or mosque or any kind of organization like that, we we all realize that the services that that are being produced are that they have to be paid by somebody, and and we as as consumers or as users of those services, we generally. Pay by taxes or through sort of donations or maybe even membership fees in some countries. So looking at this from a market perspective is shouldn't really be, in my opinion, that difficult.
2: Did you read Free Economics by any chance?
0: Oh yes, I did. Uh, and what struck me about Free Economics was that those guys they didn't really. Look at religion at all. They, they looked at more or less everything else, but they left sort of the faith and, and God out of their, their economic thinking, even though the free economics sort of universe came to several books and, and, and so on. So, so, yes, I did.
2: Faith is different from butter and haircuts. After all, religion is about really important questions. Well, you tell me, Torkel, is there a God?
0: Oh, that's a very personal question. You know, uh, asking somebody like me is, is horrible, because then I'll just ask, ask back, what do you mean by God? Uh, it, it all depends. And and if, if you ask me, God in an old-fashioned sense, I would say no. But, you know, I also have great sympathy for philosophers, theologians, and so on, who uh, argue for a much more nuanced and complex uh, idea of God. So And then you get me into, <laughs> into more territory where, where I get. More interested, you might say.
2: Well, Torkel, let me put it another way. If there are markets for religion, as you argue so finely yeah. in
0: faithonomics,
2: presumably, by inverse, there's also markets for atheism.
0: Oh, definitely, yes. And and one of the things I try to show is that one of the interesting things uh, going on right now, in in especially in, in Europe, but also in, in North America and, and India, Australia, is that secular atheist organisations are actually competing with uh, religious organizations like churches mosques etc they're competing for followers and they're also very often imitating uh, especially christian rituals christian ways of pre- performing a religion in the way they sort of uh, frame uh, atheism so so that that's really one of the more uh, interesting fields of competition, you might say. You can see that, especially here in Scandinavia, but, but also in, in Britain. You have, have growing and, and, and interesting atheist um, communities, you know, offer they offer uh, burials, they offer name-giving ceremonies, uh, weddings, and so on.
2: I'm just wondering, Torkel, how do you go about measuring belief? Because it's not a clear-cut thing. Sure it's not.
0: No, it's not. Absolutely not. And, and you have all these different surveys that try to measure what people believe in. And that obviously changes over time. You can see how belief in in God, say, changes uh, through the years and decades in in different countries. But in my book, I'm not really that interested in belief in itself. I'm more interested in the tangible, the practical sides of religion. For instance, like like all the the rites of passage, the rituals that we need in our daily lives. For instance, when, when I Take my children to a name-giving ceremony, say, uh, or when I go to to a church to to get married. That's the kind of uh, religion I'm interested in, because that that's that's much more easier to to measure, and and it's also easier to see how different uh, different religions may may compete um, in a market. So, so, belief, of course, is important to many people, but uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, important in measuring. Uh, religion. Actually, some of the most important measurements have to do more with how uh, frequently people go to church, for instance, or, or how how much they donate to the local churches and so on. So that that's more tangible, easy to measure, right?
2: I've always thought that where people equate belief with salvation is a very interesting space. It
0: is, and uh, it's a very modern, or at least a very Christian, probably Protestant idea, because if you look at many of the religious systems, say in pre modern, prehistoric, or if you look at um, indigenous peoples, they have no conception of salvation as Protestants do, but but still of course they have they have a little-